excited to jump into um, The Mortification of Sin with John Owen. There are notes on the back. I encourage you to grab those if you don't have them. Um, There are a lot of fill-ins. And uh, Owen has three main uh, works on sin and temptation um, that are typically what he's known known for best. Um, I specifically want to start with communion with God last week um, because most people say, you know, it's kind of like, sure, sin, temptation, that Owen's really known for that, but you can't understand it apart from his devotional, um, you know, that relational side of communion with God. And so you, you have to establish both. If you just have the mortification of sin and temptation, I think you have an imbalanced view of the Puritans. Um, and so I, d- I wanted to preface, you know, we talked about, you know, the incomparable God with Swinnick and the communion with God with Owen before we kind of get into sin and temptation and kind of the more practical aspects of sanctification. Um, because if you just leave it at that, the Puritans can really sound legalistic and just works-based. You have to do this, do that. Um, and I hope I show from this that that is completely not true, um, even in these works, but you have to maintain that balance. And so there's three main books. Uh, of the mortification of sin and believers. That's what we're going to look at this morning. There's of temptation, the nature and power of it, and then the nature, power, deceit, and prevalency of the remainders of indwelling sin in believers. And so those are the three main works on sin and temptation that Owen is known for. I was thinking we could cover all three, or maybe two. We're just going to cover one. Um, That's okay. This week and next week, we're looking at them um, and maybe some other things. So that's okay. The mortification of sin is really worth our time. Uh, Before we begin, as always, I'm going to just do a quick recap. First few weeks, who exactly were the Puritans? Now we're looking at, it's always good to be reminded of why we're doing what we're doing. What even is the whole purpose? Why am I here in this class, right? We're focusing there on that second point. What can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord? Owen, in communion with God, which we looked at last week, uh, he writes about how the sum of all true wisdom and knowledge may be reduced to these three heads, the knowledge of God, his nature and his properties, the knowledge of ourselves in reference to the will of God concerning us, and skill to walk in communion with God. And I would argue that's kind of that two-sided coin of walking in communion with God, knowing him rightly and knowing ourselves rightly in light of who he is, being able to walk in sweet communion, relationship, fellowship uh, with the triune God. We went through a brief biography of Owen. It was very brief. It's almost easier describing what he didn't do you know, it's kind of like Mike Bissell, like, what did he not do? Um, it's kind of the same thing with, with Owen. Um, yeah, very, very interesting kind of renaissance man, I guess you could say. Uh, this was last week, communion with the triune God, those main three points, communion with the Father in love, communion with the Son in grace, communion with the Holy Spirit in comfort. This is some of my, just one of my favorite quotes from Owen. This is the will of God. That he may always be eyed as benign, benign, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein. And that peculiarly as the Father, as a great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love. This is that which Christ came to reveal, God as Father. Um, he just has an excellent, excellent section dealing with the love of the Father. Talked about how to hold daily communion with the Son. Continually keep alive a sense of the guilt and evil of sin. Consider sins you have not yet brought to God. By faith in Christ, believe the gospel. And finally, number four, receive the righteousness of Christ. Another one, just, he's just this awesome section where he's kind of playing devil's advocate. Objection, but it may be said, surely this course of procedure can never be acceptable to Jesus Christ. What? 
Shall we daily come to him with our filth, our guilt, our sins? May he not, will he not bid us keep them to ourselves? They are our own. Shall we be always giving sins and taking and always taking righteousness is the point. He says, answer, there is not anything that Jesus Christ is more delighted with than that his saints should always hold communion with him as to this business of giving and receiving. Super heartwarming, encouraging stuff in communion with God. Um, excellent. Any, any questions on that? I know I kind of run out of time. So any, any questions on communion with God? Relatively straightforward, encouraging, hopefully. Okay. Then we're going to move to the mortification of sin. There's your original title page. I like old title pages. I don't know. That's just, if you guys haven't noticed that. Uh, I feel like we should go back to spelling sin with two N's and an E at the end. I like that. Um, there's your title page. It's got a long title. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, you know, of the mortification of sin and believers, necessity, nature, means of it, with a resolution of sundry cases of conscience. Sundry is just a fancy word for various. I wish we'd bring it back. I actually really like the word sundry. Um, I don't know why, just it sounds cool, I think. Uh, but it just is a fancy word for various, okay? With a resolution of various cases of conscience, okay? So he's concerned with the state of mind of the believer thereunto belonging, okay? And so that is what he's talking about here. Notice up front, who's he writing to? Believers, right? The mortification of sin in what's the biggest word on the title page? Believers, right? So is this something that unbelievers can do? No, right? He's saying that this is something that only those who are in Christ uh, can do. Notice also the mortification of sin is not something that you need to do to clean up your act, get it all together, mortify sin before you come to Christ. No, that's, that's legalism. And also you cannot do that. The unregenerate man cannot please God. Um, but this is very, very important. We can get the, the root and the fruit confused, and that is not good. It's not, mortify, it's not mortify sin in order to be saved. It is mortify sin because you have been saved. And what's the difference between the two? And that's a vital gospel believer, unbeliever distinction. We cannot mix the cause and effects. We mortify sin not to cause salvation. That's salvation by works. We mortify sin because of the effect that salvation has had in us as believers giving us a new nature, the indwelling Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. So that fruit and root distinction. He writes in his preface two reasons as to why he wrote this treatise. And I didn't put these on your notes, but two reasons why he writes this. I think they're equally applicable today. Number one, the consideration of the present state and condition of believers. Okay, well, What does he mean by that? Well, namely, that they don't know how to deal with sin and temptation because of peace in the world. Okay. Now, he writes this in 1656, if you guys remember historically, this is seven years after the end of the Civil War. They've chopped off Charles I's head. This is when the Puritans have pretty good peace from the outside, but there's a lot of religious infighting, okay? Because they have religious toleration, the Congregationalists are fighting with the Presbyterians, and the Quakers are fighting with the Baptists, and the Baptists are fighting with the Pado-Baptists, and so you have a lot of religious infighting, okay? And so he's concerned about that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he writes this book. So I think in some cases, even in America, it's the same case. We live in a time of relative peace and prosperity for the church, okay? Now, it's changing every day in America. But compared to historically, I know we think things are terrible and they can never get worse. They could. Uh, historically, we're still doing very, very well, okay? And so I think that condition of peace and prosperity is applicable. And number two, second reason why he writes it, 
is because of dangerous mistakes people have made regarding the mortification of sin. He writes this, These men, talking about these uh, other teachers, have anew imposed the yoke of a self-wrought-out mortification on the necks of their disciples, which neither they nor their forefathers were ever able to bear. A mortification which constantly produces the deplorable issues of superstition, self-righteousness, and anxiety of conscience in them who take up the burden which is so bound for them. And so his second reason is that we're not rightly understanding grace. The grace that saves is also the grace that sanctifies, okay? And he's concerned about a works-based legalism, righteousness being built up in those who are seeking to mortify the flesh. So he wants to ease the burden of mind, ease the burden of conscience of those who might, uh, you know, tend towards legalism, which I think is also equally applicable to us. The whole book is based on this one verse, Romans 8, 13. Put it there on your guys' handout because it's just vital. And by the way, this is not a long book, even the abridged version which is the, the giveaway today. It's like 80 or 90 pages, um, but it is thoroughly, thoroughly biblical. It's all based on Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you don't know what, what, what is the mortification, what does mortify mean? Well, maybe you think of like mortician, right? Put to death. The mortification of sin, the putting to death of sin. That is what he is writing about based on this verse. And he notes pretty much five components of this verse that essentially he unpacks in the rest of the book. So here's some of your first fill-ins there. The persons to whom the duty is prescribed. You, right? In context, who's the you? The believers, right? This is who it is directed to. You believers, these are the people who they're addressed in Romans 8.1. They have no condemnation. In Romans 8.9, they are in Jesus. They are in the Spirit. 8.11, the Holy Spirit dwells in them. The duty is for all Christians. Number two, the conditionality of this duty. If you put to death, right? If you put to death. This is not a conditional statement denoting uncertainty or possibility. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, if you do this, then this might happen. Okay, that's one way you can talk about a conditional statement. The other way is to link the certain coherence between the two propositions. If you do this, then this is guaranteed to happen, okay? That's what's going on here in Romans 8, 13. If you mortify sin, then you will live. It's a guaranteed promise. Number three, the means of achieving this duty. This is vital. The means of achieving this duty by the Spirit, by the Spirit. The only way of accomplishing this work truly is by the Holy Spirit. Here's a great quote here. All other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. I really like this second part. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. So his point is, if your mortification is rooted and based in you and what I can do in this, that's a pagan mortification. That is unbiblical. If the source and strength in this uh, fight is just you and you alone. Okay. So number three, the means of achieving this duty by the Spirit. Uh, Number four, the duty prescribed, put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body. Well, first, what is meant by the body? Well, throughout Romans, 
Paul has been referring to the flesh, the old man, uh, the sinful nature, the corrupt nature that remains in believers after conversion. Okay? The sin nature that remains in believers after conversion. Who we were in Adam, as Romans 5 talks about. Our whole nature is totally and completely corrupted and tainted by sin in some respect. Okay? Well, Romans is very clear. That remains in believers. Okay? This is never going to be completely done away with until you die. Okay? So, spoiler alert, sorry to disappoint. But you'll always be in this battle while you're here in the flesh, living. Okay? That's this conflict. So, the deeds of the body, that old man. Well, second, what is meant by the deeds? The deeds of the body. He expounds on this on, at length, but he's not just talking about outward, visible, tangible, we would say is fruit. Okay? He's not just saying put to death the fruit. You guys know this, right? If you've got you know, an apple tree, and let's say you don't want apples, you want lemons. If you just remove the apples and just hope lemons are going to come, are you going to get lemons? No, right? This is not true. You need to like, get rid of the apple tree and like, plant a lemon tree. Like, you need to do work not on the fruit, but on the roots, right? That's what he's getting at here. All throughout the mortification of sin, the deeds of the flesh are to be mortified in their causes, is what he says, from whence they spring. Where do the deeds of the flesh come from? That's where we need to strike at sin. The, role, the goal is to hack at the root, and not just the fruit. If all you're doing is fruit removal, you're still going to produce bad fruit. And number five, the promise attached to this duty. You will live. You will live. Owen suggests that perhaps Paul, and I think he's right, is not just talking about eternal life, but also joy in the present life. Okay? If you're actually at the business of mortifying sin now, Certainly, yes, that's one of the evidences that you will have eternal life, but it's also how you have joy and comfort in the present life. Notice this quote here. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. So if you want to have joy, peace, comfort, power, strength in your daily life as a Christian, like does anyone else want that? I don't know. Like, well, then you need just Paxton. Okay, um, right? Paxton is, yeah, I won't say anything else. Good, Paxton, good. Uh, then you need to be doing this, right? This is what we need to be focused on. I would actually argue a lot of, you know, spiritual depression, maybe, uh, you know, that introspection stuff that we deal with in our culture, it might come because we're not vigilant at this duty, okay? If you're not pressing on in the mortification of the deeds of the flesh, that might be one of the reasons why you're struggling. And so here's his thesis. Owen's difficult because he kind of has like 12 theses or thesi. I don't know what it is, but he has a lot. This is, I think, the main one. The choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin. In other words, he's saying, believers, if you want to be free from the convicting power of sin in your daily life, you ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And so he launches on from there. Uh, right after this, this is probably the line he's most famous for. People have never read Owen, they know this line. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's really good, but it's like, that's all he ever wrote. No, he didn't. Okay. But that is really good. If you get nothing, take that away. You need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Not a day goes by where you do not emerge victorious.
victorious in your conflict with sin by the power of the Holy Spirit or because of the deceitful nature of the indwelling power of sin, you're defeated by it, okay? Each and every day, this is our conflict. Uh, and by the Holy Spirit, we can prevail, okay? So let me give you six reasons why we, we need to continually mortify sin. These are not mine. These are Owen's. As if Romans 8.13 doesn't give you enough motivation. He just, I'll give you more. You have a lot of notes. My hope is just one or two of these land with you, okay? Um, I highly encourage, this is one of the most impactful books I've read in my life. Um, I would highly recommend each and every person read it. Um, It is just that good. And you can even see, like, think about it. This was written in 1656, okay? So we're, what, 450? I'm trying to do the math in my head. Let's just say 350? 357, 370, I think. Let's try to get precise here. Okay, years after, centuries removed, okay? Why does it still have popularity, okay? Typically, like with some books, you know, they're written, you know, for this day and age, and then 50 years later, it's like, well, you can't even read that because it's so applicable to, like, the present-day audience. It just doesn't make sense anymore. It's like, well, think about this. This is a book, you know, 370 years later. Why does it continue to have continuing significance? Well, it's because it's just so simply biblical, okay? That's why books like, you know, Calvin's Institute of the Christian Faith uh, Christian religion are so continually well-read because they're just biblical, okay? And that's what he does here in the mortification of sin. So six reasons. Number one, indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. Indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. He draws significance from the fact that this is all coming from the Apostle Paul, Right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control. This is something that Paul did daily. He writes on this, If this was the work and daily business of Paul, who is so exalted in grace, revelations, enjoyments, privileges, and consolations, comforts, above the ordinary measure of believers, how can we be exempt from this work and duty while we are in this world? Look, if Paul experienced all these amazing things, you know, as 2 Corinthians 12 talks about, you know, the, the visions that he has seen, that they're so great that he can even talk about, okay? If he experienced all this amazing sovereign grace of God, and yet he still makes this his daily business, how much more us little peons, right? Like that's basically his point, and I think that's a good point, right? Indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. There will never be a day while we are living that we are free from sin. That's one reason why we need to continue to mortify sin. Number two. Sin is still acting and laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Sin is still acting and laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. It's a really good quote here. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still right? You see the imagery going on there? Like, he's like, oh, we think we've got sin under control, right? He's saying, when we think sin is the most quiet in our lives, that's when it's actually building up a storm, right? You constantly have to be vigilant. When you think, you know, the waters are calm and we're not going to have any issues, that's actually when the waters are actually their deepest, okay? Constantly remain vigilant. Um, Second part here, So ought our fighting against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is the least suspicion. 
And Owen's going back to Romans 7 and Galatians 5. By the way, Romans 7, uh, Owen takes, it's kind of funny, in indwelling sin, he just takes it for granted that Romans 7 is talking about the condition of a believer. People debate, it's like Romans 7, believer or unbeliever? He's just like, it's just obvious that he's talking about a believer. I can write about it at length, but I'm not going to because it's obvious. And he just moves on. It's like, I really wish you would have wrote about it. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, Romans 7. In Galatians 5, they talk about this, right? Where the, you know, the desires of the flesh are contrary. They're against the Spirit. So regardless of what your view is on, on Romans 7, you see it there very clearly in Galatians 5, right? In the condition of a believer, in all of us, we have the living and active desires of the old sin nature fighting against the new implanted, new creation nature that we have in Christ. Those desires are against each other. You guys tracking with me on this? Galatians 5? This is the condition of every believer. They're constantly striving and fighting against one another. And this is something that we have to daily fight against. He says there's no safety against indwelling sin except in constant warfare against it, right? So, you know, it's not like, you know, in modern, you know, warfare campaigns, you go on a campaign and you beat the enemy real bad and it's like, okay, now we're going to rest for a little bit. You know, no, don't let up, right? You constantly have to be on the offensive. He goes on to say, there is not a day, but sin foils, meaning it opposes or impedes, or is foiled. There's not a day, but sin prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so whilst we live in the world. So that's point two. Sin is still acting and laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Point three, sin if not continually mortified, will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, and soul-destroying sins. This is a very sobering point, but it is true, right? Sin, if not continually mortified in the life of a believer, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, and soul-destroying sins. And he immediately goes to, I mean, what example maybe do you think of biblically? David. David right? David experienced the grace of God unlike any man. Excuse me. Uh, you know, just completely set apart from, you know, in many ways, the rest of the Old Testament believers there in his intimacy and acquaintance with God, and he also sins against him um, in a great way. He writes about how sin is like the grave and that it is never satisfied. He writes, every unclean thought would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Every look of anger would be murder. And he just goes on and on and on. Sin wants to run to the extreme. If it's not continually mortified, we will fall into these soul-destroying sins. He's not talking about someone losing their salvation. Heaven forbid. No, he's not talking about that. But he is talking about if a true believer does succumb to sin, they are going to be in a deep valley for a long time. Right. And I think, I mean, if we're believers here and we've all sinned. I think we understand kind of where he's getting at. Right. You know, when you've sinned, you know, against light and truth and grace, where maybe you, in, you know, just boldly went forward because you're like, hey, you know, there's grace to forgive. So I'm just going to do this. Or you're just not walking closely, um, you know, blindly. And then you realize afterwards how you've sinned. Like that wrecks your soul. Like you have no comfort. You have no consolation. You have no joy. It messes you up. Um, and that's what he's talking about there. Point number four. Whoops. The Holy Spirit and our new nature are given to us to oppose sin and lust. 
Holy Spirit and our new nature are given to us to oppose sin and lust. He writes, not to be daily employing the Spirit and new nature for the mortifying of sin is to neglect that excellent assistance which God has given us against our greatest enemy. God's given you the Holy Spirit for this conflict. You know, it's like, you know, you think of the, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, right? Um, you know, it's like going into battle without those things. Well, you're an idiot. Like, God gave you those things for that conflict. Why are you not using them? Of course you're going to get injured in that conflict. And notice he also makes the point here that our greatest enemy lies within, not without. Um, I think that's very important. Um, there is something to be said about the, uh, the world, the devil, but we also need to get to the flesh, right? You know, I think we're quick to, well, you know, it's just because the world, my circumstances, the devil is tempting me or a demon. Certainly possible, okay? But I think more often than not, the problem is just our own sinful flesh, okay? Um, and that is where he's at, too. That is our greatest enemy. So one simple takeaway I'd, I just take from this. Don't trust yourself, okay? <laughs> Don't trust yourself. You do not, you are not as principled or as much of a man or a woman as strong biblical convictions as you think you are, okay? You need to be like Joseph when any type of sin comes. You just get out of there. Don't put yourself in that situation. It's not just Joseph, right? I mean, Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 6, right? Flee from sexual immorality. It's not just sexual sin, okay? But any type of sin, it's like, I'm strong. I have the shield of faith. I can defeat this. It's like, nope, just get out of there, right? Like, don't be dumb, okay? Don't deceive yourself. Do not trust yourself, especially with moments of temptation. We'll talk about temptation more next week uh, with Owen. Number five, neglect of this duty, excuse me, neglect of this duty makes the inner man decay instead of renewing him. Neglect of this duty, if you're not mortifying sin, makes our inner man decay, wither away, instead of actually renewing him by grace. He writes, by the omission of this duty, grace withers, sinful desire flourishes, and the frame of the heart grows worse and worse. Where sin, through the neglect of mortification, where it gets a considerable victory, it breaks the bones of the soul, makes a man weak, sick, and ready to die so that he cannot look up. It will completely strike you down. I've kind of already talked about that. And then finally, point number six, our spiritual growth is our daily duty. Our spiritual growth is our daily duty. There's a long quote here I wanted to share with you guys. On this point, it is our duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1, to be growing in grace every day, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, so that our inner nature should be renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. This cannot be accomplished without the daily mortifying of sin. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and every degree of spiritual growth. We will, I really like this. I don't know why I really like the imagery here. We will not be making progress in holiness without walking over the bellies of our lusts. You know, it's like this guy, you know, with just like a sword or with a gun or whatever, and he's just like just gunning down or just destroying, you know, temptation, sin, desire, all these things. Just, just walking over the dead bodies of sin in your life. And it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. It makes me feel tough. It's like, yeah, that's what I need to be about, Right. He who does not kill sin along the way is making no progress in his journey. So this is a conflict, right? This is not a, you know, 
waltzing through daisy fields, right? This is uh, something that we need to be vigilant in the fight against. So there's your six reasons. He has this excellent section time-wise we're not going to get into. Um, I didn't plan on getting into it. On the necessity of the Holy Spirit as the effective cause as to bring about this work, right? Like not in our own strength. It's the Holy Spirit who does this. Suffice it to say, he's the spirit of holiness. Uh, God gave us the Holy Spirit for this reason. He's changed us. He's changing our hearts and desires to be more conformed to the image of his son. How does he do this? Um, I didn't give you these, but just three points. Number one, by causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits of the spirit, which are against the flesh. The spirit is the one who does this. The Holy Spirit strikes at our sin, the heart of it, the weakness and destroys it. And finally, number three, the spirit brings the cross of Christ into our hearts and minds such that we have communion with the Son. Significant there. See how he links those two? It's like in the mortification of sin. It's not that we've left communion with God behind, right? One of the ways you mortify sin is you have communion with the Son. You spend sweet time in fellowship with him. Okay, last 10 minutes here. What is the mortification of sin? Okay, Caleb, you've said a lot of things, gave us some reasons. I've got plenty of reasons. I've got too many reasons to do. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. What is it? Okay, what is the mortification of sin? What's our responsibility? First, I think it's helpful to start with what it's not, okay? What the mortification of sin is not, okay? It is not, this is a quote from him, to utterly kill, root out, and destroy sin such that it no longer resides in our hearts. It's true that this is that which is aimed at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. So sorry to disappoint, (laughs) okay? But Owen is right. I think we understand this experientially, right? You will, by the Spirit, have great victories and slains of sin in your life, where you are walking over the dead bodies, those bellies of sin, okay? You will have those moments, but it will never be all dead, okay? You guys seen The Princess Bride, right? And it's like, he's not all dead, he's only mostly dead, okay? Like, sin in your life will only ever be mostly dead, okay? It's never going to be all dead, okay? Only mostly dead. So it's not to utterly kill it, root it out, such that you never sin again. No, sin will always be amongst us while we live. It's not just changing some outward circumstances so that you sin less. It's possibly that's something you should do, but that's not the mortification of sin. It's not the improvement of a quiet, sedate nature. The answer is not go be a monk, go lock yourself in an island or in a, in a, in a monastery in Greenland. That's not what you're supposed to do. That is not the mortification of sin. You will still have the same sin struggles in that monastery in Greenland or in Iceland. A sin is not mortified when it's now just diverted to another sin. What is the mortification of sin? Number one, an habitual weakening of it. Okay. The mortification of sin is a habitual weakening of it. He says, every lust is a depraved habit or inclination pushing the heart towards evil. Here's where understanding, you know, the faculties of the soul that we've talked about, you know, the heart as the mind, um, you know, the will and the affections is really important. Before Christ, our hearts were bound to sin, okay? Our mind, affections, and will were inclined. We, we were pulled that way to sin, okay? Just by nature of who we are, okay? That's who we were in Adam, okay? But now in Christ, with the implanted new creation nature that we have, our affections, our wills, our desires, our minds are actually being renewed after the image of Christ. We actually have new desires. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me? Okay. But the old one is still there, right? So they're conflicting. They're fighting against each other, right? 
You know, the good that I want to do, I don't do. You know, the bad that I don't want to do, that I do, as Paul says in Romans 7. Okay? These are against each other. Okay? Now, in various persons, these inclinations you know, to this type of sin or this type of holiness might be stronger or, or lesser to each person. Okay? We get that. Owen writes about that. But his point is, is that unless sin is mortified, unless we're constantly striving to kill it, that old sin nature, unless we're continually weakening it, it can grow entrenched. It can grow hardened. It can grow uh, you know, resolute in its strivings for sin. Does that make sense? If we're not continually weakening it, it gets stronger. Okay, That's what he's saying here. So we constantly have to be weakening it. That's the first object in the mortification of sin. He has this profound illustration um, that is drawn from Scripture. He writes how mortification is like crucifying a man to a cross. Okay, We get the imagery there, right? Uh, Romans 6 talks about that. But at first, you know, you're crucifying that old man, that old sin nature to the cross. That man is going to cry out and struggle. Okay, I've never been crucified, but I can only imagine how painful that was, okay? The Romans did it because it was painful, okay? When they were nailing people to the cross, they're crying out, they're striving, they're writhing to get off, to be free from that. He's saying killing sin is like nailing that man to the cross. In Romans 6, talks about our old self was crucified with him. But if we let sin get free from down off the cross, he's going to get stronger and stronger. So we're continually nailing him to the cross. Does that make sense? That's what we mean by weakening it, continually crucifying sin, mortifying it, nailing it to the cross. So it's habitual, proactive, continually going after it. Number two, constant fighting and contending against sin. And this, I have a couple of, of subpoints here. Constant fighting and contending against sin. Well, how do you do that? Well, first, you have to recognize and know the enemy, okay? Recognize and know the enemy. Don't be deceived about sin. Um, I mean, we could get into particulars here, but we don't really need to. I think all of you guys know whether it's anger, uh, sloth, laziness, lust, um, just discontentment. You know from where it comes from, a wicked heart, okay? Strike at it understand it. Know, okay, when I sin in this way, what is causing this? Why am I thinking these thoughts? Why am I desiring these things? Recognize, know the enemy well. Second, under the subpoint, work to be acquainted with sin's strategies, okay? I mean, think about this. Your old sin nature is living and active and deceiving, okay? So don't be deceived by it. Think about those double agents that are hidden in your heart because you have them, okay? They will deceive you. Labor, this is what he says, labor or work to be acquainted with the ways, the wiles, the methods, the advantages, the occasions of sin's success. This is where the warfare really begins, I would argue. Study the strategy. Where does it get a foothold? Um, Know its plan of attack. And he uses the language of warfare here. He talks about how you need to have a battle plan. He says it's a very primitive warfare for an army to just rush into battle, right? Like if you have no plan, it's just like, there's the enemy. We're going to take our entire force and we're just going to, like, 
you're probably going to lose that battle. I don't know if you guys study military history at all, but that's generally speaking not a good plan of attack, okay? You generally want to think, okay, well, his strongest force is here, and so we're actually going to flank, and we're going to come around this side. We're going to set up, you know, a deceiving maneuver and all these things, okay? Well, think about that in your conflict with sin, because sin is doing that to you. Sin is thinking, your old sin nature is, how can we get an advantage? How can we sneak in here? Oh, it's only just a little bit here. Recognize that. Know the enemy and know its deceit. Third, never relent in the assault. Never relent in the assault. Your enemy is never to be entirely defeated. And so the only way to have victory is to never give up. To make sure that he is effectively defeated is to, he talks about how ever giving him death blows. You know, you know that like, don't beat a dead horse. You know, it's like, hey, we've talked about this a ton. Okay, well, sin is the dead horse. You just need to be beating the rest of your life, okay? It's never actually a dead horse. It's a mostly dead horse, right? And you're just constantly making sure it's mostly dead. And then when you die, it'll be all dead, okay? But that's what you have to do. You never relent in the assault. So that's kind of that sub-point. Uh, and then finally, the third main point, a degree of success in the battle. He doesn't mean merely not sinning. He means living righteously. That's good. Don't sin, but we want to do more. And so he lays out actually at length, what does this victory look like? You know, how do you mortify sin and have victory over it? When the heart at any time recognizes sin and temptation in action, okay? I see sin and temptation uh, coming, seducing it and forming sinful imaginations to put the lesson into practice. Okay, I'm aware of these things going on. The heart must immediately see what's happening, Know what's going on. Bring the sin to the law of God. This is wicked. This is sinful. And the love of Christ. Notice the both and. I didn't even put this in my notes, but I can't talk about it. He has an amazing point how if you're constantly just fighting the battle of sin with the law of God, I can't do this. I know this is sin. I, this is wrong. You're going to lose. And his main point is actually Romans 6.14, where Paul talks about how um, you know, in the battle with sin, we are not under law, but under grace. It says the whole motive and basis for the mortification of sin is not the law. It's actually grace. It's not don't do this because I know it's sin. It's actually I need to do this because I love Christ and he has loved me and made me his own. Does that make sense? That is vital. And I left that out of my notes and you should be upset because it was so good. Um, but it's really good. But he, he says both, right? You bring it to the law of God and the love of Christ. Condemn it and follow it to execute it to the uttermost. So that's how you have victory over sin. Um, I don't have this summary. What he says here, when a man comes to this state and condition, he's done all these things. His lust is weakened at the root in principle. You've struck at the root. You have mortified sin. You continually need to do that. Um, he has a wonderful section on seven uh, preparatory directions um, in fighting sin, I'm just going to give you the last one. Uh, he says, rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Do not allow it to gain the smallest ground. Do not say, thus far I shall go and no further. If you allow it one step, it will take another. It is impossible to fix boundaries for sin. It is like water in a channel. If it ever breaks out, it will flow on through the breach. It is easier to stop it in the beginning than after it has begun to run. That is true. If you start when it is small, when it is weak, that's when you're going to have victory. If, it, if you allow it to grow, it's going to be worse and worse. 
I want to end with the final chapter. I know we're out of time. The final chapter. He ends by saying, you know, if you've got a 100-page book, he's like, the last 90 pages have all been preparatory heart work, okay? This has all been preparation, really, to my main point. And you're like, are you serious? This is a lot. <laughs> I feel like I have a lot to do, okay? And this is actually really encouraging. He ends with essentially just one final point, with just one point. It's really simple. Here's how you actually mortify your sins. You set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this. Talking about faith. Faith in Christ for mortifying sin. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Okay? So if you get nothing from the mortification of sin, and you're like, well, what do I do? Well, you have faith in Christ that you can mortify your sin. That's basically his closing point. And it sounds so simple, and we're like, well, duh. But how often do we forget this? And he has a point, too, right after this. He says, uh, raise up your heart by faith to an expectation of relief from Christ. Okay? So go into the conflict against your sin, actually believing and expecting that Christ can deliver you from the power of sin. Like, we forget that. Like, we just think this sin is just, it's, it's, it's in me, I'm stuck with it, I can't have victory over it. Well, if you go into your mortification of sin with that mindset, guess what? You're going to lose. Okay? You can't go into it with that mindset. You have to go in with this mindset of through the great sovereign blood of Christ, I actually can kill my sin. Okay? And so I think he ends with, okay, wow, we have a lot we need to do. He ends with, it's all of faith. It's all by trusting in the grace of Christ to actually work this out. He goes on, consider the mercifulness of Christ, consider the faithfulness of him, expect power, and then endeavor to obey. There is so much more in this book. I put on the back of your guys' handout, if you're like, man, that's a lot, pretty much just four main points to take away. I think this is really helpful with your own heart, but also with the hearts of others, maybe you're counseling or working with, right? The object of change, what are we trying to change? The heart. Number two, the agent of change. How is the object changed? The Holy Spirit, okay? The impetus, that's the driving force for change, is the gospel, okay? And the means of change, the mind, okay? So when you're trying to help someone, don't give them the, you know, medical, hey, take two of these, see me in the morning, you'll feel better, right? It's like work through with them, hey, do you understand the gospel? Are we trusting and praying for the Holy Spirit to help us with these things? Are we seeking to change the heart, the affections, and the will by changing our thinking, the way we're going about this battle. We're out of time, but does anything on this from mortification of sin jump out to you as like, wow, that's really helpful. I needed to hear that. Might be encouraging maybe if I stop talking for a little bit. Anything on mortification of sin? Oh, I might be able to. Yes. Oh, oh. oh no. I have to go through this whole thing. Uh, yes. Win the heart. Yes, there you go. Well, I just thought um, point B from that last page was really encouraging to work to be acquainted with sin strategies. Um, and just thinking about, you know, sin attacking from the flank and just reflecting on different ways that 
Oh, I'm just gonna. Yeah, it's just it's just those thoughts that yeah. can, you know, lead to spiritual callousness. You know, yep. Know yep. That's good. Yeah. I just had a question. Mm-hmm. Um, being renewed. Um, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Right. It sound like it's been like killed. Right. Gone. Sure sounds like that, but experientially it sure doesn't feel like that. Right. Right. So that's the that's the tension that we live in and that's I mean that's Romans 6, 7 and 8. And if it's not I mean if you don't see it there as well, it's also in Galatians 5, right? <laughs> the desires of the flesh are contrary to the desires of the spirit. These are against each other. And so he's making the point is that if we're not vigilant in the fight of constantly contending against sin, sin will actually grow stronger and, cal- and be entrenched. And I think this is true. I mean, experientially, I mean, I've seen this, where if I'm not being aware of the deceitfulness of sin and how it attacks, I'll realize, whoa, like, I've been struggling with this thing that I didn't even, didn't even realize started way back here two years ago because I wasn't vigilant in weakening it at its root. And now it's a six-foot tree producing some bad fruit. So that's what he's saying is the habitual weakening. You have to start there because otherwise, you know, it's not going to be, you know, mostly dead. It's actually going to be living. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. The habitual so weakening? Say, like, in Romans 6, when it says the old self, our old self Right. Yeah, Romans 6 is dealing with the, a helpful way to put it is the penalty and power of sin. So the penalty of sin has been paid for, right? That's, I mean, that's Romans 5. That's Romans 6, right? We have, um, uh, we have died to sin, right? We've been united with him. All these things, um, you know, the death he died, he died to sin once for all the life he lives. Romans 6, 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So he's saying, look, you're dead to sin, so start thinking that you are. Does that make sense? Because the sin nature is going to say you're not. There actually is power. Sin actually still has power over you. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Well, Paul, I don't even understand why you need to say this, because you said we've been crucified, everything's been dead. Like, sin doesn't have any power. Well, if we allow it to reign, it will reign. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members of sin as instruments for unrighteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I think his point there is that actually if you are living under law, sin will have power over you. If you are living under grace, sin will not. So one of the reasons why I think we actually struggle with indwelling sin and the lack of mortification of it therein is because we're living under the law and actually not living under grace. If you're living in, I can't do this, I must not, you're going to struggle. But if you're living in, um, and you're, you'll still struggle, but you get the, like, this clicked for me, like, when I was in seventh grade. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. Why am I still doing this? And then it's like, wait, I actually have to desire something else greater. It's like that book, was it, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, right, that John Piper loves? It's like, he's onto something there. Like, that changes such that you don't want to do these things. 
So I think what Owen is saying there with a habitual weakening of it is that no, we can never entirely kill it completely, but we must make sure that it's always mostly dead. Otherwise, it's going to cause serious problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Right. That's the whole point. But there might be things in your past, like you know, hurts or traumas or whatever, where you have these sort of conditioned knee-jerk reactions, and you're yeah, not trying yeah. in them. And maybe that's more of a temptation. That's like where temptation happens. But then sin does happen, and that's a pattern, and you want to break that. Right. Or, or maybe what I'm hearing is like shame over something you've done in the past that just you thought you were done with it, and five years later it just pops up. I can't believe I did that. Yeah. Or like you've been significantly, legitimately hurt in the past. Yeah. And it's, it's like a self-defense protective response that you recognize is wrong, mm-hmm. but you kind of don't recognize it before yeah. you've already done the same. Well, more of, yeah, I think the difference between those is like, one is like being sinned against. There's a different response there when in the past, like I've been sinned against, how you respond to that. Responding to sin that you've committed, you see what I'm saying? It's like there's a difference between we're both saying there. So, and Owen is not talking about that. He's not talking about being sinned against. Um, obviously, it's difficult, and I mean, I didn't prepare for that, but thinking through love, forgiveness, um, trusting in the Lord when being sinned against. Um, uh, Lloyd-Jones talks about this in Spiritual Depression. Um, where he's talking about, like, you know, that one sin I've committed in the past. He's like, you know, being a failure today because of something in the past is completely worthless. He's like, you can't, it's in the past. It's hap- you can't do anything about it, okay? Letting the past dictate how you live presently and in the future makes absolutely no sense. Don't do that. I um, mean, he has a whole chapter dealing with that. Um, so, I mean, that's what I would say. I mean, that's difficult. I think we all live with that. It's like, I can't believe I did that. Um, it's like, well, do you believe that Christ has paid for all your sins and that there is no condemnation for those who are now in Jesus Christ? I think as you get older and older, you're just going to get more and more like, I can't believe I've done that and what the Lord has saved me from and just continually basking in his grace. So we got to end. It's already late. Mortification of sin. Who wants Emma? All right. Emma's got it. You are dismissed.